Welcome to Out of the Question, a podcast that looks behind some common questions and uncovers the question behind the question while providing real solutions for biblical world and life view. Your co-hosts are Andrea Schwartz, a teacher and mentor, and Pastor Charles Roberts. Thanks for joining us again for this edition of the Out of the Question podcast. And today, Charles Roberts and I are going to try to get behind the question, are smart people always wise? So Charles, I'll let you take a stab at this first. Well, this is a perennial question. You know, uh, people talk about they have a lot of, say, for example, book learning, but they don't have any practical smarts. There are different ways of talking about this. And uh, it is a subject, of course, which uh, Holy Scripture uh, speaks to frequently and most notably in the book of Proverbs. And also for our interest and our listeners, it is a subject that uh, uh, Dr. Rashtuni wrote about and spoke to quite frequently himself. And I'll never forget, I was in one of the editions of uh, one of the volumes of A Word in Season, one of the entries. He has several in that series about wisdom, but in one of them, he said he'd known a lot of very smart, intelligent people who were absolute fools. And um, this gets to the heart of the matter is how do we make a distinction between being smart and being wise? And that is one that, again, the scriptures speak to quite frequently, that there's a distinction to be made between people who know facts, who uh, maybe know how to put something together or take it apart, but that doesn't do you much good if you don't know how to use it or use it wisely. And I think as a society, maybe it's changing a little bit now with all the political correctness and what has been deemed being woke, is that people think that the more complicated somebody can make something or the more convoluted a subject is that you need to go to college or have advanced degrees in order to talk about it. And I've been in many of a discussion in the last year and a half or so as we're talking about the health matters regarding COVID or regarding getting shots. And invariably, somebody will say, well, are you a doctor? Do you have any degrees? What are your degrees in? Are you a biochemist? And immediately that's supposed to invalidate opinion because the standard isn't necessarily one that says is something true or false. The standard becomes, well, tell me your credentials. Yes. And throughout uh, history, especially recent history, it's been people with credentials and people with lettered degrees after their name who have gotten the world into a lot of trouble. But it goes to the very heart of the matter about what really constitutes wisdom. Even in the earliest history of the human race, people had to learn how to do things. Uh, but again, how to apply the knowledge that they've learned and to use it in a way that is productive and, again, intelligent, that was a key factor. So a person might know everything in the world about constructing a bow to go hunting, with a, like with a bow and arrow. But unless they knew something about tracking animals and what type of steps to make without scaring the animal off, knowing all that, it really doesn't do you any good. And likewise, when we come to more recent times, we have people who, again, have lots of degrees after their name. They know lots of things about medicine and viruses or politics or whatever it may be. But in terms of really interacting with the real world and applying it in a way that is productive, they seem to lack a lot of basic wisdom. 
But Dr. Rustuni gets to the heart of the matter in his in, in, in chapter 18 of its volume two of A Word in Season, where he talks about this. He says, the test of wisdom in the final analysis is to establish our life, thought, and action on the rock, Jesus Christ. To do otherwise is to build on sand. And this gets to the issue of what is our knowledge built on and what can we, how can we justify the knowledge that we have? So when you were talking about making a bow and following or tracking animals, my mind immediately went back to the Garden of Eden. When God created Adam, he didn't make it so that Adam had a manual on how to do everything. And so the process of giving Adam this dominion mandate was about the acquisition of knowledge, how Adam could become smart in what we would talk about, how to be able to discern which animals should not hang out with each other, or the best way to uh, be able to make or fashion tools. But the essence of being wise in that pursuit was tested when the tempter basically tried to give a different definition of what it meant to be wise. In other words, Adam should have gone back to the idea of, I'm a creature created under my creator, and then respond accordingly. And so I think we have to look at going right back to Genesis 3 and be able to see how we have this uh, parting of the ways between what it means to be smart and what it means to be wise, because listening to the tempter, that sounded pretty good. Who wouldn't want a shortcut? Yeah, and the tempter, um, Satan, he immediately appealed to humanity's trust in their own thinking and their own thought processes. So when he says to Eve, did God really say this? It's questioning the word of God. And so he's giving them an alternative, an alternative starting point in order to analyze what is before them. And that, too, is a key factor in what separates knowledge from wisdom. Certainly, human beings can start with their own minds and what they think are objective facts before their eyes and build scientific systems and all the rest of it. And the world is awash with these kind of things today. But let's just take a look at where we are. I was speaking to uh, the folks at my church yesterday. We have been discussing the Ten Commandments, and one of the things that I said concerning the death penalty and capital punishment as it relates to the Sixth Commandment, thou shalt not kill, is that, you know, modern people think of the death penalty as barbaric. Uh, it is something that is brutal. We know so much more today about psychology and sociology and these sorts of things. So, uh, this is this is a holdover from a pagan age where people were not really very smart. My question to them was, and I'll pose it to our listeners, how's that working out for us? It's not yeah. working out very well. So uh, it, 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 sooner or later, like Van Til used to say, and Dr. Rastuni quoted him often, we, we reach a point of epistemological self-consciousness where the things that are defining knowledge and intelligence for us begin to sort of collapse on themselves and we start to reap what we've sown by starting with something other than the divine truths of God's word. Now, the book of Proverbs, you mentioned it earlier, has a very famous, although I would say not only misunderstood, but a lot of people don't even like it, 
that wisdom begins with the fear of the Lord. And you'll hear Christians saying, well, I just think that's not the right way to say it. For fear, we should say reverence. And if we have a reverence for God, and I'd like to remind people, no, <laughs> maybe reverence could be included under that, but you need to fear he who can create and punish and bless and judge. In other words, part and parcel of being cognizant of your own creaturehood is that you realize you're not the creator. And so there is no wisdom according to scripture unless you have that healthy fear of if I don't live according to what God says, there are going to be certain consequences. And to be honest, the more you know of those consequences, and I'm, I don't know if it's true for you, but it is definitely true for me. The more you know of those consequences, the more you fear being stupid and not following God's law. And this is something born of experience. And that too becomes a factor in uh, making the delineation between uh, being smart and being wise, or may even say knowledge and wisdom. Because again, you can accumulate lots of knowledge and information in a particular area or a particular subject. But unless you have the experience of applying it and knowing how it actually works, you're, you're going to have all kinds of problems that will creep up that make life quite miserable for you. So that, for example, a person may know all about being able to take a car apart and put it back together, but they can know nothing about driving in traffic and observing the basic rules of courtesy when you're driving. I realize that's kind of a vanishing thing in most <laughs> places nowadays, uh, but that, again, is an example of what we're talking about. In, in order to live in a, in a proper way, in a way that God says, this is the path of blessing, this is the path of prosperity, you, you will do this and not do that. And you may know all about the particular thing, the mechanics, say, of money and what you can do to uh, earn money and to properly invest your money. But it's experience with that that leads to wisdom. And you might say, well, okay, I see an opportunity to invest a lot of money here. And I know the mechanics of doing that, whether through the stock market or through whatever means, but maybe my doing this at this point might negatively impact this area. You know, there are all kinds of things that you have to think about that really depend on wisdom and knowing the connections between things, not just how it works out, you know, um, on a piece of paper. I'm thinking very much about what's been happening in our world in the past year and a half and what's been astounding is to realize that, uh, say, for example, the, uh, the so-called lockdowns, uh, how much of this was premised on computer-generated information and so-called facts that had nothing to do with what was going on in the real world. And it resulted in untold misery for millions of people on the planet. And this goes back to what we even try to do with education. Um, I have opportunity to spend time with parents who have young children. And it's amazing how many of them still will say, I got to get my children into a good college. I, I want to make sure my children go to a good university. And we're talking about parents of grammar school age children, that they're making their decisions about that. And so some might say, I don't want to put them in a small Christian school because that might not look good on their academic resume. And yet, as Christians, they're not asking the question, is my goal to produce a person as an adult who is wise and can think biblically, or 
am I just looking at it in terms of these incremental steps, getting into a good high school, getting into a good college, then being able to be recruited for a good company without asking the question, what is the world in life view of these various stepping stones? And why should I be surprised at the end when all the stuff I've poured into my children seems to go away because I've gone after the wrong prize? I'm particularly familiar with what you're describing in the context of theological education and seminary training. And I recall, I, I think this speaks to the point you're making. It, it certainly speaks to the broader point, if it doesn't speak directly to the one you're talking about. I recall some years ago when I was pastor of a church in another state, um, I got a call from a fellow, a fellow minister who had recently gotten a call to a church in the general vicinity where I lived. He had been pastoring a church in another state. And um, when he got to this church, he called me up and another pastor and on separate conversation said, look, you know, I found that the elders at this church and the church generally is sort of more broadly evangelical than Calvinistic. And I just want to let you brothers know and to be praying for me because I'm going to whip these people into shape. You know, uh, I'm going to turn these people into five point Calvinist or else. Um, words to that effect. And I said, um, brother, you might want to tread lightly here. You know, you might want to be careful about, I understand it's a worthy goal to be faithful to what scripture teaches concerning, you know, salvation, all the rest of it. I said, but, uh, you know, that particular church has a long history of being more broadly evangelical than, you know, five point Calvinistic, even though it's a reformed, so-called reformed church. No, 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 no. So I took, I think it took less than four years and he was out. It created a major, major problem. And this was, this was not somebody right out of the seminary who had never pastored a church before. So, you know, seminaries and theological education struggle with this issue if they pay any attention to it at all. Uh, and, we, and we find this particularly, I think, in Reformed churches. I'm going to assume that most of our listeners are more or less Reformed in their theology, not a, maybe not all, but, you know, our churches tend to be populated with clergy who are very well educated with one or more degrees after their name, and they can exegete scripture, they know Greek and Hebrew and this sort of thing, but when it comes to the everyday application of these things and interacting with people, it goes out the window. And I recall in my own life, I was actually still in seminary at Westminster Theological Seminary, and my wife and I were facing a crisis where... Um, we were dealing with a crisis pregnancy, and the doctors came to us with some very, very serious questions about what was going to happen with our unborn child. And I can tell you, right there is where the rubber meets the road. And anything you've ever heard in a classroom, regardless if it's a seminary or a college, it goes out the window. And you have to deal with, I'm not thinking about page 56 of the book on ethics. I'm thinking about what am I going to do here, and what does God want me to do? And that's really where, if wisdom has not been the goal, you know, get wisdom. The, the Bible says it over and over again. You'll encounter those situations and then will rely on the experts. I can't tell you how many families I know that ended up pursuing drastic medical procedures that had they been given the opportunity to really think about what the years ahead would look like might have decided differently. But customarily, you'll hear people say things like, I'm not a doctor. I don't know. 
you know, maybe television helped so much by having all these doctor shows and and having them speak in these very technical terms. I, I think I've told you my dad was a physician and he would watch the doctor shows and he would say, doctors don't talk like that. <laughs> if, if they have to use the big words uh, to to show how smart they are on television, trust me, they don't even know what they're talking about. And so if you miss the the context of whatever you do, whatever profession you have, whatever calling that you're living it out for the glory of God, if God's word isn't the standard by which you evaluate that, you're very likely to end up with deferring to the experts. Like, well, you should end your pregnancy because nothing good will come out of this. And the people listened and lived to regret it. If you don't have wisdom, the opposite of that isn't being neutral. It's you act and make decisions based on foolishness. Proverbs chapter 1, verse 5, we read, A wise man will hear and will increase learning, and a man of understanding shall attain unto wise counsel. And I think that's another factor in gaining experience that leads to wisdom is seeking the counsel of others. You know, if you're sitting in your office or wherever, and you're looking at all your diplomas and think, well, I've pretty much got all the knowledge I need, um, that's not going to lead to wisdom. And if I may use another personal reference, I know the first year after I was ordained into the pastoral ministry, I probably spent half my time on the phone calling ministers with a lot more experience than I had asking for guidance about, you know, what, uh, how do we, you know, this, this sort of thing. Uh, to me, it was a great blessing to seek the counsel of others. Uh, because I knew I have no clue here. <laughs> I mean, I, I know what the theology books say, but when you're dealing with uh, issues of somebody with a terminal disease or su- severe marital problems, whatever it may be, it is helpful to seek uh, the wise counsel of others. Um, Dr. Rustuni made the comment that a wise man will always seek to expand the range of his learning because wisdom does not despise learning, although learning often despises wisdom. Yes. And one of the hardest things to do is to challenge your own established presuppositions, maybe challenge them not only on what they say, but all the investment you put in. If you're $100,000 in debt from your college education, and now somebody confronts you with information that says a lot of what you know is not true, and not only is it not true, but it goes against what God's word says. It's very hard to dislodge your presuppositions because you're still paying on that debt. And maybe you got the job you have or you're in the profession you have because you started applying those principles. So it's a huge thing to be honest enough to say what I think and what I do is contrary to God's word. Walking the path of wisdom is so very important in so many areas of life, whether it be in uh, marriage and family life, uh, the type of career or job that we have, regardless of how mechanical or technical or not any of those things it may be, just in interacting with people at a supermarket. All of these things require wisdom and uh, not simply just knowing the mechanics of how to do this, that, or the other. And as I said, that comes with the experience of interacting with people, but also, as you pointed out, and as God's word clearly says, our starting point must be what God has revealed to us in Holy Scripture. And if we don't know Scripture, if we haven't really learned, then 
what scripture teaches and applied it and know how to apply it, it's not doing us much good. I know um, I referred to one of my pastoral experiences in that same place. I would occasionally run into people who were maybe in their middle age years and they would find out I was pastor of this particular church. Oh, I, they would say, I, when I was a kid, and that meant maybe 40 years, at least 40 years earlier, by the way, uh, when I was a kid, I went to Mrs. So-and-so's Bible memorization program there. And they had a, they had a, pl- a program there for uh, teaching children to memorize Bible verses. And I said, well, oh, well, that's wonderful. Where do you go to church? They say, oh, I, don't, I haven't been to church in years. <laughs> but they could probably still quote those Bible verses. See? So they had that kind of learning and knowledge. But what was the impact on their lives? And as life gets more complicated and for anybody who hasn't really thought it through, we are in for some very complicated times because the war between biblical Christianity and humanistic statism is waging. And there are some people who understand we're in a war and there are other people who don't like the idea of war and just bringing them up to speed is sometimes a very daunting task. And it can be frustrating. It takes patience, but it also takes the resolve that if you're really going to share the good news of Jesus Christ, part and parcel of that is sharing his law word, that there aren't going to be any good fixes or any good remedies that aren't in line with scripture. Because if we seek remedies that aren't in line with scripture, we're going to end up with God's curses anyway. It may seem good to us. Like we said earlier, it seemed good to Eve. I have no doubt that it was like, oh yeah, well, yeah. I, I, you know, at the end of the day, we're tired. You know, being tired isn't a sin, but maybe she didn't like being tired. And so if we could do it, you know, a different way, we'll pursue it. So, so that account in scripture should make us bring to our memory the fact that this is our tendency. And because of our sin, we're going to go to that tendency all the time. We are largely dealing with in our society today, the failure of the part of churches in particular and Christian leaders to appreciate the fact that all of scripture speaks to all of life. And that implies both knowledge and wisdom. And this has come into very sharp focus relating to uh, the coronavirus and all of the things that have happened in relation to it. Because unfortunately, speaking specifically of, we'll say broadly evangelical or Bible-believing churches, in many of these churches, I will say maybe perhaps even most, the idea is that, uh, you know, our concern is to get saved and go to heaven and maybe to be able to parse where the Antichrist is and the coming of the rapture. But after that, we have to rely on our experts. If we want to know about government and what's good for policy, we'll, we'll listen to our favorite conservative politician or TV talk show host or, or whatever it may be. So in those churches and for those leaders, um, they look at the largest portions of God's holy word, to borrow a phrase from Gary North, as God's word emeritus. You know, it really has nothing to say to us anymore. And because of that, we, we suffer horribly because God were, God's word speaks to everything in life, including health, including who we listen to or don't listen to for how we are to prosper, how we are to live. And when you are left at the mercy of experts, people who have degrees, people who have studied all kinds of scientific or medical things, 
divorce from and outside the boundaries of the truths of God's word, it leads inevitably to cruelty and tyranny. And this is largely where we are trending today. I think that, of course, the long-term future is much brighter than what humanism has laid out for us because humanism is doomed to fail, as we've talked about in previous podcasts. Right. But, but I would encourage our listeners to make sure that they are in a fellowship where they can hear all of God's word applied to all of life in the teaching and preaching. So let me give you a firsthand, I don't want to call it a confession, but it's something that I struggled with re- recently. And then after thinking about it, I found that it took a while, but I got back to a biblical foundation. So people who are listening may or may not know the name Jack Kevorkian. But Jack Kevorkian in the early 90s became quite famous because as a physician who was a pathologist, he moved into the area of helping people who were either chronically ill or chronically in pain to assist them in ending their life. And uh, there was a movie that was done. I really don't know how long ago it was made, but I watched it recently. And one of the things that's very interesting about when Hollywood puts together a film, if you have good actors and you have good writing and you have effective editing and direction, you can communicate something that's much more than just what's being said. And so we got to see firsthand how Dr. Kevorkian picked the people who either had um, a chronic condition that didn't mean that they couldn't keep living, but they didn't want to live anymore. And so I watched the film. And at the end, Charles, I was actually troubled because I was like, well, what's wrong with that? You know, I mean, if somebody doesn't want to live anymore, what's wrong with that? Now, I'm by myself. I'm saying, Andrew, you can't be serious that you're even thinking this. But it was like, how would I answer someone? And now thinking about the fact that if some of the consequences of these you know, shots that people are taking are going to produce extensive illness, maybe illness that we haven't seen before. We may be faced with lots of people who are in a lot of pain or people who the families are being drained financially taking care of someone. So this film put all that together and you're left with at the end, you know, being affected by what the intent was. Well, what's wrong with it? So movie's over and I'm doing something around the house. And it was like deep breath because God's word says, and that answered it. Didn't make the realities of those things easier, but all through the whole film, Kevorkian was saying things like, well, we gave God a chance to do this and he didn't do it. So we're going to take matters into our own hands. And what was interesting in the film the political structures of the day had no real response. They didn't know how to say it was wrong or right. And I think they depicted that fairly well. But we face these things all the time. So it's abortion or it's euthanasia or it's, you know, transgenderism. If we just go on the emotional response, we may deem ourselves smart, but we certainly won't be wise. Yes, and that is an excellent example. Um, I certainly remember Dr. Kravorkian, and uh, you know he would set up this little machine next to the bed of somebody who was tired of living and, and help them uh, into the next world, so to speak. 
And again, what is the rationale for that? It sounds like it's uh, uh, being merciful, you know, but that's part of the problem that we face today is everything in our lives are informed by foundational types of knowledge that are completely divorced from God's truth. God is the one who defines what mercy is, uh, not Kevorkian, not Oprah Winfrey, uh, not anybody else. Oh, well, you know, you will inevitably have a definition of mercy, but it, there are only two choices ultimately. And what we are seeing today, and I, I didn't see that movie, but it sounds like it uh, certainly brought out some aspects of it, is that if you don't start with God's definition and God's wisdom regarding, say, end-of-life issues, uh, it's going to lead to some very, very bad, bad situations. I think the challenge for us as Christians, and I'd be interested in your thoughts, I think you were actually hinting at this a little bit in terms of um, the vaccine, is you know what, what should we do in terms of, of wisdom and our Christian testimony uh, when we may be having to deal with people who are profoundly ill you know, who, as a result of not being wise? You know, do we simply cast them aside and say, tough luck for you? Um, what, what are your thoughts on that? Well, it's interesting that you bring that up because um, there are a lot of people who were very much against being told they had to wear a mask and that there were uh, restrictions. You know, you can't come in here unless you have a mask. Well, then they hear reports, and I think there's still some controversy over whether or not someone who has received the shot can shed and I heard these very same people who were very much against the discrimination between mass and unmass saying, I certainly hope that at churches or places, they have people who've been vaccinated and they have to sit in a different part than those of us who aren't because we might get it. And I, I pointed out the hypocrisy <laughs> of that statement. Yes. So you don't like discrimination when it goes against you as opposed to when it goes against someone else. So- to answer your question, um, I'll, I'll tell you a story and then we'll get back to it. Um, being pro-life, being against abortion, I had a lot of contact with people who held similar views. And way back, I think it was sometime again in the 90s, there was a, a shooting of an abortion doctor and the person said who did the shooting that he was Christian and he was stopping this evil. And I got calls from people in my homeschool community group saying, what do we do now? What do we do now? Someone who's a Christian shot someone. And I said, what's your problem? That's not how you deal with evil. You don't go and execute someone yourself. So we still say thou shalt not kill. But they were, they, they, they thought like thou shalt not kill doesn't apply in this situation because we liked the guy who did it. Mm. Well, let's take it to the current situation. What do we do if we're now confronted with lots of people who are very ill? The same thing the scripture says in terms of showing compassion and caring for the sick and caring for members of your own family. We don't throw God's word out the window because now something gets inconvenient for us. So what we have to apply is what are we called according to the word of God, not according to our comfort, not according to our financial stability? Because God's word doesn't change, even if the particulars of life change. So how do I view the fact that there might be some people who get very sick? Well, as God gives me opportunity 
and taking care of members of your own family and reaching out to those widows and orphans in their distress. Those are our marching orders. It is uh, lost knowledge in our time, or at least it's made light of or ignored that the existence of hospitals goes right back to the earliest history of the Christian movement. Because in ancient pagan society, uh, there really was no mercy. If you were sick, unless you were of the upper class, you might be able to uh, partake of the services of what passed for medicine. And maybe, say, in the ancient Roman era, medicine was more advanced than we might give them credit for. But that was only for the upper classes who had the money. Uh, for the vast majority of people, you got sick, that was it. Tough luck for you. And uh, compassion and mercy was largely unknown in many of uh, the, the cultures of the ancient past. But with the coming of the message of Jesus and the spread of the kingdom, that began to change and change dramatically. So the first hospitals, the first places that were actually put together to take care of people who had leprosy or whatever the case may be, uh, were done by Christian people, and they were doing it out of compassion and consideration of mercy as taught by our Lord and as given in, in God's law. Um, and th that's the interesting thing, especially in light of, you know, what we've been told is a pandemic. And I, I like the story you just told about the issue of vaccine shedding and all the rest of it, because for many people, the idea is, well, look, uh, there are lots of illnesses and sicknesses out there. And, uh, you know, ultimately, I use good sense and wisdom to take care of my body and my health. I'm not going to do anything stupid. But on the other hand, ultimately, my life is in God's hands. And so whether I get some horrific fatal disease or not in the long run is up to him. So a lot of people have found just going about their business in these challenging times, uh, trusting in God's mercy and, again, using basic principles of health and sanitation. And you know, the example you gave is, okay, well, if I'm sitting next to somebody who's been vaccinated, well, I'm not going to trust God's sovereignty and power at that point. You know, I've, I've got to go sit on the other side of the church. But uh, I, I think we may find ourselves in coming months and years in a similar situation. And when you're dealing with profoundly sick relatives and neighbors and people up and down the street, they're not going to need to hear the five points of Calvinism. Uh, they're going to need to have somebody take care of them and, and you know, wipe the sweat, sweat from their brow and show them some physical love and compassion. But that's not to say that the doctrine that, and, and Calvin goes beyond five points, as you and I both know, is that based on your understanding of God's word and the fact that things are foreordained, and once you're in the family of God, truly, you cannot be ejected. We're going to be informed, but our mercy and compassion is going to be better informed with good doctrine rather than bad doctrine. Absolutely, and that's exactly the point I tried to make just a moment ago, that what defines mercy? Where, where do we get our understanding of what mercy is? I mean, we could expand, expand that to any number of things, you know, our ideas of justice, uh, our ideas of beauty and goodness and truth. Uh, I think a lot of people, a lot of Christians and broadly evangelical churches in particular would be surprised to realize that their thinking along those lines is not really founded on God's word. It's founded on so-called humanistic or secular learning. Right. So going back to the idea of what is compassion uh, in the film, which I think is called You Don't Know Jack, which is kind of a play on words there, but Dr. Kevorkian's first name was Jack. 
is that he billed himself as showing true compassion that this person is suffering. Well, let's go back to a doctrinal position. Is suffering bad? Is suffering the same thing as sin? No, God tells us that we are to shun sin, not shun suffering. Paul the Apostle lived the latter part of his life suffering either from imprisonment or whatever that thorn in the flesh was. So if we assume that pain is the bad thing or not being able to do everything you could, you know, I'm often taken with people who have become health nuts. You know, they've lost a bunch of weight. They realize they weren't doing things correctly. But health for the sake of health is kind of like your analogy of knowing everything about a car engine, but never driving. I personally want to be healthy so I can continue to serve God. If in the course of the rest of my life, God sees fit that I have my own thorn in the flesh, or I end up with some sort of disability, I'm not relieved of duty to still follow his word. And so if God intends for me to live out my days with suffering, he must have a good reason for that. I think, too, that uh, the pattern in humanistic societies, and this goes back to probably ancient Greek philosophy and um, outlook on life, is that the pursuit of knowledge is a thing good in, in, in and of itself. And so um, the, the ivory tower philosopher or uh, mathematician or whatever, uh, they are performing a moral good by reading lots of books and, and teaching all sorts of things like that. And I, I don't want to be misunderstood. Uh, knowing history and knowing physics and all the rest of it are important enough things. But it's interesting if we start with the biblical pattern, um, we find that the definition, as we've said several times already, is starting with what God's law tells us and what his word has revealed to us and building on that. And that in scripture is a real world application. I mean, look at our Lord Jesus. I mean, the man worked as a carpenter, or some have said a brick mason, maybe some in between. He, he lived in a world where people actually did things, and yet he was the most brilliant philosopher, theologian who has ever lived. Um, the, the typical, stereotypical, I guess I should say, intellectual uh, that most people think of as a guy wearing a cardigan sweater who uh, probably can't do much more than uh, read his books and run his computer. You know, the absent-minded professor type, if that resonates with some of our listeners. Uh, and uh, that is not something that is um, uh, thought of well, according to God's standard. And I'm going to go back to the idea here, Charles, that we have a real opportunity when we see the realities, when we see how humanism is at war with Christianity. I cannot tell you how many Christian parents, how many Christian educators have deferred to the quote unquote smart experts when it comes to their children. Your child is dyslexic. Your child has ADD. Your child has a learning disability. And it's a label that then becomes an excuse for the child and the parents feel like, well, I guess that's just the way it is. Does the Bible talk about 
learning disabled, ADD, hyperactive, or does God's law word apply to those situations? And granted, not everybody's going to have the same ability or the same outcomes, but if God's word is not sufficient, and the reason I bring this up, I find some really dedicated Christian educators that when a family comes and wants to put a child in their school and they say, well, my child has a diagnosis of the ADD, we're not equipped to deal with it. They send that child to the public school. Is that the best we can do? So we're going to take the people who are maybe the most in need of assistance, and we're going to send them to the God-hating humanist school and expect that these children, let's say they are starting with, you know, one hand tied behind their back as a disadvantage, we're now going to make sure they don't know that God created them and that he gives them the capacity to serve him. And it's really an issue with me because it's where the church is not prepared to deal with these issues. And we have to say that if we apply God's wisdom to a situation we are better equipped than the experts. We are better equipped than the people who think the only remedy to suffering is to end the suffering for someone. And I think this is a real challenge that we must examine in our own self. Have we made being smart superior to being wise? Yeah. And those circumstances you just mentioned, people end up uh, being turned over to the cruel mercy of the state. And uh, it leads to all kinds of horrific problems in some cases. Let me share with you something uh, that happened some years ago before I went to seminary. I was working a job in uh, a moderate-sized southern city. It was in a downtown area. And just down the street from our offices was uh, a big fire engine company, you know, a fire department. And so the fire engine was uh, frequently going by uh, the, the second uh, floor windows of where we worked. And one of the supervisors in my job, uh, he would always jump up when the, the fire engine would go by and announce to everyone in the office what type of fire engine it was. Now, this was a man of advanced age. He wasn't a young man. And he would say, well, it's a hook and ladder today. And he, he was always giving these descriptions. Well, one of the other uh, uh, supervisors once said to him, you know, you must have been a Dalmatian in a previous lifetime. <laughs> that may not make any sense to some people, but look it up. The point I'm making with this is that the, the, the knowledge of people today, when, if we turn our children over to them, or if anyone is turned over to them, is almost that absurd. You're not a, a Dalmatian in a previous lifetime, lifetime. You're actually a woman living in a man's body. This is your problem. <laughs> uh, it, it is absolutely astounding where so-called learning is, has led humanity, especially in formerly Christian cultured nations, or what claim to be, uh, down this path of absolute madness. And the sad part about it is because there is no wisdom among many of these people, they don't even realize that they are, to use a phrase we've quoted before, staring into the void. Yeah. I like the fact that you mentioned Dr. Rushduni's word in season. There are seven volumes of them, and he tackles life from a lot of different perspectives, but always with the basis of God's law word being foundational. An interesting story about how those essays came to be. 
these started off as small essays called Bread Upon the Waters, and they actually appeared in a Central Valley, California newspaper. And he wrote as a pastor. And over the years, he just had a regular column. And then they started being compiled into volumes as is really Chalcedon's devotional offering. And the first volume was published. And um, a man contacted Mark Rushjuni, Dr. Rushjuni's son. And he said he was so taken by how his 10-year-old daughter had responded to this, that he said, are there more essays like this? And Mark said, yes, there are. We probably have enough for a multi, I mean, a a number of volumes. And the man financed all of it. Wow. Yeah. And so why did it have an impact? Because he appreciated it. But when he saw that his 10-year-old daughter appreciated it, he realized this was the application of God's word to life. And I would hazard the assertion that anyone who had read those in the original form and learned from them would have gained more wisdom than a whole lot of pastors and theologians. Right. So Dr. Rushduni was sort of this unusual gift from God. He could write deeply footnoted philosophical treatises like he did in The One and the Many. And then he could do things like a word in season or radio broadcasts like Good Morning Friends, which have been transcribed into a three-volume set. And so you see that link on what you're talking about, Charles, theory, application. Yes. And if I may, to sort of wrap up my side of this discussion, I'd like to once again quote something from this very thing we're talking about. This is the very first volume of uh, a word in season and uh, a chapter that's entitled learning and wisdom. Dr. Rustuni ends that chapter with this. The world is desperately in need of wisdom. It needs to know that the Lord giveth wisdom, Proverbs 2, 6, and it needs to seek it by faith. God promises wisdom to all who ask him for it. If any of you lack wisdom, let him ask God. And he says, the reason then that we have so many learned and unlearned fools is that they do not want wisdom. They will not ask for it. Be not wise in their own eyes. Fear the Lord and depart from evil. Amen. Amen. Well, listeners, thanks for joining us. You can always be in touch with us through our email address, out of the question podcast at gmail.com. And Charles, we love to get comments, don't we? We do indeed. And uh, we'd like to get more. So uh, we, we want to hear from our listeners. Any topics you'd like for us to uh, take on, please share your thoughts with us. Until next time. Thanks for listening to Out of the Question. For more information on this and other topics, please visit calcedon.edu.